Welcome to Move by Grace, the podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio. Good morning, Harvest. We're glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, I want you to open your Bibles up to Amos chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. I want to open up with a word of prayer, though. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we come before you just ready to hear what you have for us this morning. God, we are thankful for the time of worship we enjoyed together. God, we are thankful for the time of prayer that uh, got to enjoy with Pastor Nate and the rest of the church this morning. We, just, we thank you for the ability to connect in these ways during this time. God, I ask that this morning your word would go out and that it would accomplish its purposes. And Lord, that you would be glorified by what we do. Here this morning, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I've worked as an addictions counselor for uh, 16 years I've been in the field. Um, I don't have uh, any personal experience with addiction. I've never been drunk before in my life, never tried any drugs before in my life. So inevitably, I often get questioned by uh, clients who know that about me, that I, I don't use any alcohol or drugs in that way. Um, and they tell me, well, you don't know anything about addiction. You know, how can you do anything to help me? And at my office, my classroom at, at the, the prison where I work, uh, it's lined with Proverbs. Not all of them are from the Scripture. A lot of them are from the Scripture. Um, but when they ask me that, those kinds of questions, I often point to one, one proverb. It's not a biblical one. It's a, I think it's a Chinese one. It says, if you want to learn about water, don't ask a fish. So sometimes a person living outside of water can provide a different perspective about water than the fish who are constantly swimming in it. And that's what Amos is doing here for the nation of Israel. See, Israel believes that she's in a good relationship with God. At the time when Amos was called to preach to Israel, she was experiencing some measure of prosperity. She had a lot of material possessions. She was enjoying protection from enemies for the moment. And things were going pretty well in Israel. From Israel's perspective, they thought that their, the water of their relationship with God was, was good. They saw clear water. They were rich. They were happy. They were blessed. All because God was pleased with them. It had to be that way. But that wasn't what Amos saw at all. Amos saw black, murky water polluted by sin. Amos saw an angry father who was about to discipline his wayward child. 1 John 4, 4 through 6 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So even though God had called Israel to be a holy nation, set apart from every other nation on the earth, at this point in her history, Israel was no different than any of those other nations that surrounded her. In fact, Amos argues that she is even more guilty of sin because they should know better. John would say that the majority of people in Israel were of the world because that's how they were living. They were living just like the rest of the world. Amos, however, 
He's from God. And he is speaking to them by the spirit of truth. And in this chapter, Amos employs a a really creative uh, cause and effect format to teach Israel what is really happening in her relationship with God. And with these cause and effect statements, he basically says, when one thing happens, you know that this other thing must happen as well. From the effect, you can certainly infer the cause, and from the cause, you can be sure of the effect. And Amos uses this format throughout the entire chapter, but she is, the, this format is most obvious probably in verses 3 through 8. It's a very unique method of teaching, which I, I think speaks to Amos' wit, uh, to his character. It sounds and looks a little confusing at first, but you're going to see it, hopefully, as we progress through these verses. Uh, we're going to move through this chapter, like the other ones, verse by verse. Uh, we're probably going to spend the most time on the first two verses, and then the rest we're going to move through pretty quickly. Just remember that the key to understanding this cause, these cause and effect statements is to remember that Amos is using them to teach Israel about the true status of her relationship with God. They think they're doing great. Amos is saying they're not doing great. Here's the truth. So let's get started with verses 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And verse 1 marks the beginning of the second main division in the book of Amos. Uh, my last sermon covered the entire first section of the book of Amos, chapters 1 and 2, which were composed of judgments against eight nations. The second division stretches from chapters 3 through 6, and it's comprised of, of five sermons that Amos delivers to Israel. Notice the beginnings of chapters 3, 4, and 5. They all begin with the words, hear this word. Okay, so those are three sermons. And then the last two sermons both begin with the word woe in chapter 5, verse 18, and chapter 6, verse 1. So there's five sermons in chapters 3 through 6. Then chapters 7 through 9 comprise the final division in the book of Amos, and, we're, and in those, five, those chapters we're told of five uh, visions that Amos receives from God. So eight judgments in chapters 1 and 2, five sermons in chapters 3 through 6, Five visions in chapters 7 through 9. That's an easy way to break up the book of Amos. So, so Amos begins his first sermon to Israel here in chapter 3. And in verses 1 and 2, they, they serve as a, as a topic statement that encapsulates the current status of Israel's relationship with God. And this is also the first cause and effect statement, which initiates the pattern for the rest of the chapter. So the cause stated here is that God knows Israel intimately, and the effect is, because he knows them, he's going to punish them for all their iniquities. And I just want you to notice the language God uses to describe Israel here, because he descri describes the privileges that Israel enjoys. First notice he calls them the people of Israel, which speaks of their election. You know, God chose Abraham and entered into a covenant with him to be his God and to bless Abraham and all of his descendants. Abraham begat Isaac, and who begat Jacob, and God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and in doing so, God showed not just his election, but his ownership of, of Jacob. He was God's possession. And then twice in these two verses, God speaks of Israel as being his family. God had adopted Israel and declared them to be his children. Of all the families on the face of the earth, God granted Israel the privilege of being his very own sons and daughters. 
God also says that he brought them up out of the land of Egypt where they had been slaves and he miraculously moved among them to redeem them from their slavery. And finally, I just want you to notice that word known because the Hebrew word translated here speaks of knowing someone through experience. It's an intimate relationship with God that God is saying that he has with Israel. So God is speaking about the unique relationship he has with Israel. It's a personal relationship. He had elected them. They were his prized possession. He had adopted them. He had redeemed them. And he has an everlasting, intimate love relationship with them. And of all the nations that have risen and fallen on the face of the earth from the beginning of time, no nation can claim to share these exclusive privileges that Israel had. Okay, Israel was a privileged nation. But over the years, they had forgotten how the privileges that God granted to them also had a purpose. And they were responsible for fulfilling that purpose. Privilege has a purpose. Why did God elect Israel? Why did he adopt her? Why did he redeem her? Why did he intimately reveal himself to her? He did all of this so that Israel might glorify him. They were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that they might shine God's light into all other nations of the world. They were to be his witnesses, declaring his glory and his power and his salvation to the ends of the earth. Israel had forgotten that with great privilege came great responsibility because they enjoyed the privilege of being elected, adopted, redeemed, and enjoyed an intimate relationship with God. They were also responsible for glorifying God. They were responsible for glorifying him by keeping his commandments and living holy lives. They were responsible for glorifying him by witnessing to others about his mighty works, his wonderful attributes, and the salvation he offers through faith in his Savior. They were responsible for glorifying him by loving him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the word of the Lord spoken through Amos, his entire book is about proving to Israel that they were not fulfilling their responsibilities toward God. And consequently, he's going to punish them for it. Israel, you see, they wanted all the privileges of adoption. They wanted all the privileges of election. They wanted all the privileges of redemption and all the privileges of sweet intimacy with God. But they didn't want to fulfill any of the responsibilities that came with that relationship so here's the lesson God is teaching Israel in this first cause and effect statement. Israel has broken the covenant and God is going to keep his promise to them. God keeps all of his promises. When God made a covenant with Israel after he brought them out of the land of Egypt, he promised that he would bless them. All the privileges and blessings of election and adoption and redemption and God's constant presence would be theirs if they would fulfill their responsibilities by keeping all of his commands. But if they didn't keep his commands, God promised that he would curse them and bring destruction upon them. And you can read about all the covenants, blessings, and cursings in Deuteronomy 28. So Amos is telling Israel that they've broken the covenant. They have not fulfilled their responsibilities to God. They were a derelict nation that were, was full of iniquity. And God is going to keep his promise to them, only it's not the promise they wanted to remember. It's the promise that they have chosen to forget. It's God's promise of destruction. Amos spends his entire ministry preaching that privilege does not make Israel exempt from punishment. 
In fact, it makes them even more responsible to God to live according to his purposes. And because they have been derelict, God will keep his promise to destroy them. God's message throughout Amos is summed up, is summed up by saying to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So Christian, have you been neglecting your responsibilities toward God? Have you forgotten that you are not your own? That you have a king that has laid claim on you to do with you as he pleases? Have you been so enamored with the great privileges of being a child of God that you have neglected the responsibilities you have as a slave of Christ? And what about us, church? You know, Nate preached on this a few weeks ago when, when he preached on the church of Laodicea. If we're neglecting our responsibilities to glorify God by serving him, by obeying him, we will become a lukewarm church. And Jesus hates that in the church. He wants a church whose works are hot or cold, works that are medicinal and comforting or refreshing and satisfying. Jesus doesn't want his church resting on their haunches, soaking up God's blessings. He wants his church working to shine his glory and sharing those blessings. Israel at the time of Moses was lukewarm and God was about to spew her out. And we don't ever want to get to that place in our walk. We have responsibilities to fulfill today as God's children. Past obedience is no substitute for present obedience. Well, great privileges come great responsibility. Let's fulfill our responsibilities so that we can remain hot and cold and not grow lukewarm. Let's move on now to verse 3, where Amos begins to ask in a series of questions where, he, where the cause and effect statements are pretty easy to identify. In verse 3, he asks, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? That's a simple question to answer. Of course not. Going for a walk with someone is intentional, it's purposeful, and both parties have to agree to it, otherwise it won't happen. So the effect described here is that two people are walking together, and that doesn't happen without a cause. They have to first agree ahead of time to meet together at a certain time, in a certain place, for the purpose of going on a walk together. And Amos, again, he has a specific lesson in mind for Israel when he asks this question. You know, describing the Christian life as a walk with God is an image used time and time again throughout the Bible. And by using this question, Amos is bringing Israel back to the time and the place where Israel made an agreement to walk with God. Israel entered into a covenant with God when they were at Mount Sinai after the exodus from Egypt. Exodus 24 verse 3 says this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. This is when the nation of Israel and God agreed to walk together. And part of the terms of that covenant was not just agreeing to be blessed by God when Israel was obeying, but also to be disciplined by God when Israel was rebelling. Amos is preaching that punishment was coming to the nation of Israel. And by asking this question in verse 3, he was reminding Israel that she agreed to this. So circle that word agree in your Bible. That's the key here. As part of the terms of the covenant, walking with God means that Israel agreed that she should be punished by God when she goes astray. And so the lesson Amos was trying to teach Israel here is that walking with God means accepting discipline from him as well as blessing. 
Christian, when you were born again, you repented of your sin, you put your faith in Jesus, he gave you his Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing your sonship. sonship. At that moment, you entered into the new covenant by the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect mediator of that covenant. And when you cried out to Jesus as your Savior, you agreed to be in a relationship with a Father who loves you too much to not discipline you when you sin. He disciplines you because He loves you. He disciplines you because His will for you is your sanctification, and discipline is a part of that process. When you became His child, you agreed to His treating you as a child, and He always disciplines His children. Because he loves them. So Christian, don't be surprised when you're disciplined. And don't reject the discipline. You agree to it. It's for your good. It's for your sanctification. Let's look now at the next cause and effect statement in verse 4. There are two of them here, and each one is, a different, is, is teaching a different lesson to Israel. We'll begin with the first question. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? This is the lion who is stalking his prey and who has crept up to within striking distance of his unsuspecting prey. That's the cause. And the effect is, he lets out a roar as he attacks. And that roar strikes fear into the heart of his prey, immobilizing the prey just for a split second, giving the lion opportunity to deliver his death blow. So this is the roar right before the death bite to the neck. And God has been roaring his threat of judgment against Israel and all of our neighbors since chapter 1. The fact is that he's been warning Israel that this day was coming ever since they were in the desert in Exodus. Only now Amos is saying that the time before God strikes is now very short. Just as the time between the lion's roar and his striking his prey is very short. And so the lesson Amos is teaching Israel is that God's threats about coming judgments, they're not idle threats. God's going to do what he says he's going to do. Israel has presumed upon God's grace for so long, they didn't think he was going to act. Their sin had lulled them into a false sense of security. And Amos is warming them here that, that the time left for them to repent and change their ways is very, very short. Because the death blow's coming. And Christian, God always does what he says he's going to do. And just like Israel, we need to understand that God's threats are not idle threats. He says he will discipline his children when they sin. And if you've been sinning and God has not disciplined you yet, don't for a moment mistake his grace for condoning your sin. He's being patient with you so that you would have time to repent. So that you won't have to bring calamity into, into your life to discipline you. But be assured that if you don't repent, he will discipline you because he loves you. God does not speak any idle words. Every word that comes from his mouth accomplishes its purpose. Understand that discipline will come because he says it will. But you can be spared of that whole process if you would just repent right now and turn from your sin. Let's look at this next question. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? This is the lion who has taken his prey to his den to eat it. And he's growling as he, as he tastes the flesh of his prey. This is the roar of the lion who has power over his prey. The lion wanted to destroy his prey, and he, and he did it because the prey couldn't do anything to stop it. And now that the killing is over, that was the cause, and the effect is the lion is roaring over it as a conqueror. 
And Amos is teaching that not only is God about to deal Israel a death blow, but God has the power to do it as well. God's threats of judgments are not idle because God has the power to destroy Israel, just like a lion has the power to destroy his prey. 2 Chronicles 25 8 says, God has power to help or cast down. Psalm 22 8 says, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nation. Job 12 13 through 14 says, With God are wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. Verse 23, he says, He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. God has the authority and the power to destroy any nation he chooses for any purpose he chooses, including his own people who have broken his covenant. That's the lesson Amos was teaching Israel. God has the power to destroy. They're in his hands. Christian, God has absolute power over everything and we are to fear him. Jesus says in Revelation that whatever he opens, no man can shut. And whatever he closes, no one can open. He has authority and power to discipline us whenever he wants to, however he wants to, for whatever he re- reason he wants to, and there's nothing that we can do to prevent it. God has power over all things, just like a lion has power over his prey. And maybe you find yourself this morning in a season of discipline. We can't stop God when he decides to discipline us, but what we can do is trust him in his discipline. We can trust that his discipline comes from the heart of a father who loves us and who works out all things for the good of those who love him. And that's what you need to do this morning if you're being disciplined. You need to trust in God's great love for you. The next set of cause and effect statements also come from nature. This time they center around the work of a fowler, someone who uh, sets traps to catch birds. It says... Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Obviously, a bird is not going to get caught in a trap unless a trap has been set for it. That's cause and effect. A bird isn't going to suddenly fall from the sky and die unless there's a reason for it. And in the same way, Amos is teaching that there is a reason for Israel's coming destruction. God isn't sending destruction because he has nothing better to do or because it amuses him or because he's sadistic and loves causing his people pain. No. The reason God is going to destroy them is because they have broken the covenant. For decades upon decades, they've broken the covenant. They have not obeyed the word of the Lord. They've worshipped false god. gods. Their hearts are far from Israel, far, far from God. Deuteronomy 28:45 says, All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord our God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. So there is a reason a bird is snared. The trap's been set for it. God has a reason for punishing Israel. They had broken the covenant. And in the same way, Christian, when we are disciplined by our Father, he has a reason for doing so. Hebrews 12, 5 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Don't regard lightly means don't despise God's discipline because you you think it has little value. There's a lot of value in God's discipline. Verse 10 says that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. 
So don't regard lightly his discipline and don't become wary when reproved by him. That means don't become discouraged and lose, lose heart when you're disciplined by God. We all need a lot of discipline because we're all a mess. Don't become discouraged. Rather, simply repent and thank your Father for loving you enough to correct you and then get back up and sin no more. Look at the next question in verse 5. It says, does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? <clears throat> if a snare has been sprung, the effect, that means the cause is an animal has taken the bait that was in the snare. If the animal had not been enticed by the bait, it would not have gone after the bait. And if it wouldn't have gone after the bait, it wouldn't be caught in the snare. Amos is saying that Israel has been caught in God's snare. Judgment was coming. But they wouldn't be in that position if they hadn't been enticed by the bait and gone after it. If Israel would have just stayed on the narrow road, they would have walked with God along a level highway. But because of their sinful hearts, they had wandered off the path and because they had succumbed to temptation, they were caught in the snare of judgment. So the lesson for Israel is that it's their own fault that they are going to be destroyed. It's the consequences of their own sins. They are responsible for where their heart has led them. God has warned them over and over and over again, and they persistently, stubbornly refuse to obey. And now they're going to be destroyed, and it's their own fault. Christian, we have to take responsibility for our sin when God disciplines us. We're the ones who have been tempted to sin by our sinful flesh. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's not God's fault that we gave into temptation. It's our fault that we ran after sin instead of running down the path of escape that God promises he provides whenever we're tempted. So take responsibility for your sin. No animal would get caught in a snare if he didn't crave the bait. If you're in the midst of discipline this morning, take responsibility for your sin. It's your fault. It's not your family's fault. It's not your circumstances fault it's not your brother's fault not your job's fault it's your fault confess your sin and repent proverbs 28:13 says whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy you will find the mercy you need when you turn to God in repentance let's go on to verse 6 is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid a trumpet was blown in a city when danger was approaching. That's the cause. And it meant that there was an imminent threat against the city, which was usually an invading army. And so naturally, the effect of hearing the trumpet blast would send a shiver of fear and panic down the spines of all the inhabitants of the city because they knew something bad was coming. And God has been blasting the trumpet in the ears of Israel for years, and most recently through Amos, to warn the nation that calamity is approaching. Amos has been preaching that judgment is coming upon Israel. He is the trumpet warning Israel of impending calamity. And the proper response that Israel should have is to be trembling in fear of God. <clears throat> Israel should be bowing down before God in humility, covering their heads with dust and their bodies with sackcloths. 
They should be weeping and wailing before him in repentance because that's the proper response to Amos' preaching, but that wasn't happening in Israel. What was Israel doing instead, do you remember? They were, Amos chapter 2, 12, it says, they were commanding the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. They were actively, purposefully trying to silence the voice of the prophets because they didn't want to hear what God was telling them. They didn't want to be told to change their ways. They didn't want to hear that God was displeased with them. They didn't want to hear the truth about their relationship status with God. <coughs> so I asked, what about, what about you, Christian? Maybe God has been warning you about what will happen to you if you persist in your sin. How are you going to respond this morning? Will you repent or will you keep resisting the Holy Spirit? Or what about you, unbeliever? When you hear God, God's word warn you that your sin will condemn you to hell for all of eternity. And the only way to escape that certain judgment is if you repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you going to respond this morning? Will you refuse to believe the message and suffer the wrath of God's judgment as Israel did? Or will you believe the gospel and be saved from the wrath to come? And I would plead with you not to be like Israel, but to hear the trumpet warning. Fear the one who has the power to send your body and your soul into hell. Fear God in his terrible wrath and throw yourself at the feet of Jesus in repentance and faith and trust him to deliver you from the coming judgment. He will do it. He will save you, but you must come to him in faith. Look next at what happens to the nation, or the person for that matter, who refuses to live in the fear of the Lord. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? <clears throat> God is sovereign over everything that happens on earth. If disaster comes upon a city, it's because of God's will, either his active will or by his passive will. God's active will is when God directly moves to bring about his plan. Like in Israel's case here, God is actively raising up the nation of Assyria to come and conquer Israel and the nations surrounding her. God's passive will is when God actively chooses not to inter directly intercede. In such cases, God is not the cause of the action, but he allows it to happen to accomplish his purposes. A good example of this is when God allowed Satan to strike Job with a variety of calamities. Satan was the cause of those calamities, but God was actively passive. He chose to allow Satan to strike Job. And even though Satan meant it for harm, God used Job's suffering for good to accomplish God's purposes in Job's life. The lesson Amos is teaching Israel here is that when a nation does not fear God as they should, God brings disaster upon that city. Failing to fear the Lord is the cause and the effect as God allows a disaster to come. Amos wants Israel to know that when the disaster does finally come upon Israel, it is not due to chance, but to God's divine will. And so we need to make no mistake about this, church. God is allowing every form of disaster among the nations to be happening right now, including this virus. He may not be the cause of every disaster. Remember, Satan had the power to afflict Job with a physical ailment he calls, caused boils to spread, spread all over his body. But God is ultimately allowing every disaster to happen. He's sovereign. And God has a purpose and a plan for sending disaster upon a city. 
He sends it on nations so that they may fear him and turn to him in repentance and faith. C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's loudspeaker. God allows calamity sometimes to get our attention. And the world is full of people and full of nations that do not fear him. And he wants us to repent and walk with him in the fear of the Lord. He wants us to do as Acts 3.19 prescribes. It says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And so be praying, church, that as a result of this disaster, people in our nation, people in our city, would learn what it means to fear the Lord, and they would humble themselves before him, and put their trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. Pray that this unprecedented calamity would produce an unprecedented revival that would see souls saved in unprecedented numbers in our country. Let's move on to verses 7 and 8 and take them both together. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Again, remember, Amos is using cause and effect statements to teach Israel lessons about her relationship with God. And here Amos is using his personal relationship with God as an example to the nation of what their relationship should be like. In verse 7, Amos, he identifies himself as one of God's prophets. He was called by God to fulfill the responsibilities of a prophet. And in verse 8, Amos uses himself as an example of fulfilling his responsibility as God's prophets. So he says, the lion has roared, who shall not fear? In other words, he's say, saying, I, I have heard the lion's roar personally. That's the cause. And I have responded by fearing him. That's the effect. God has called me to prophesy, and I have responded by obeying his call on my life. And what has he asked Amos to do? The Lord God has spoken, but who can prophesy? Amos is saying, God called me to prophesy, God's revealed his will to me and told me to go and declare it to Israel, and I have fulfilled that responsibility. I fear God, therefore I obey him. I must prophesy because he called me to do so. And so the lesson Amos is trying to teach Israel in these two verses is that Israel needs to respond to God's roar the same way that Amos responded to God's roar, with obedience. It's a simple lesson. When God speaks, we're to obey his voice. If that teaching is news to you, then you've either been a Christian only for like 30 seconds or you don't read the Bible enough. Let's move on to verse 9 where we see a shift in Amos' thinking. He's still continuing the cause and effect statement pattern, but in verses 1 through 8, he focused his teaching on Israel's relationship with God in the past. Now in verse 9, it begins to focus more specifically on what's going to happen to Israel in the future and their relationship in the future. This is where their relationship's heading. Because Israel has broken the covenant with God, because Israel has not heeded the warning roars of the lion, because Israel has been enticed by sin and brought judgment on themselves, because they have not obeyed God's word, in the remaining verses, Amos specifically describes what her punishment is going to look like. And we're going to move through these verses really quick much quicker than the first eight. So in verse 9, Amos calls the pagan nations to bear witness to the sins of Israel. 
Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves at the mountains on the mountains of Samaria. Ashdod was one of the prominent cities of the Philistines. Uh, Egypt, of course, you recognize. Uh, Samaria was the capital of Israel. And it was built on a mountain 300 feet above the surrounding plains. And those plains were also surrounded by uh, hills and mountains. And so Amos was calling Ashdod, the Philistines, and Egypt to stand on those surrounding mountains and look at what is happening in Samaria. And this was to Israel's shame. Israel's sin was so great that even the pagan nations who don't know God would see their behavior as sin and know it's sin. And what sins are they guilty of? See the great tumults within her and they're pressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. We spent a lot of time discussing the sins of Israel in chapter 2, so I don't want to spend much time here. The indictment that they don't know how to do right sums up the depth of depravity they had reached in every facet of their society. So remember, these sins are the cause, and here's the effect of these sins. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. At this point, Israel doesn't know that it's the Assyrians who will be the adversary that God raises up to do this, but the scriptures teach us that Assyria, Assyria's conquest of the region began in around 740 B.C. by the Assyrian king Pul. We can read about that in 1 Chronicles 5.26. And nearly 20 years later, around 722 B.C., the capital, Samaria, uh, was conquered by King Shalemajar, which you can read about in 2 Kings 17, 5 through 6. Let's move on to verse 12, where we see another cause and effect statement, which reveals where the heart of Israel would, will be at the time of her destruction by Assyria. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. The cause illustrated here is a lion attacks a sheep, and the effect is that the shepherd wrestles from the lion's mouth a leg or a piece of an ear of the sheep that had been attacked. The shepherd doesn't rescue the sheep from the lion's mouth. He's unable to do that, but he grabs whatever he can from the lion to take back to the owner of the sheep to prove to the owner that he had tried to rescue the sheep from the lion. The shepherd had to have evidence of the lion's attack so that he wouldn't be falsely accused of wrongdoing and held responsible for the death of the sheep. So he desperately cleans to, to whatever part of the sheep that he can. And so in this illustration, Israel is like the shepherd. Notice that God says there will be some people in Samaria who will be rescued. God is going to allow a small remnant to survive, survive the disaster. But look at what those survivors are desperately clinging to during God's attack on them. They're clinging to their couches and their beds. They're clinging to what is most important to them at the time, which was their possessions, their wealth, their stuff. This is what was important to them. They were being disciplined by God because of their sin, and in the moment of discipline, instead of turning to God in repentance and crying out to Him for help, instead they grasped their possessions and desperately tried to hold on to them. When they were in the midst of their punishment, they clung to what their hearts loved the most and revealed just how corrupt and deserving of punishment they really were. And so the lesson here is that even in the midst of discipline, their hearts will be so far from God, they still refuse to turn to Him. 
So Christian, when you are being disciplined by the Lord, what does your heart cling to? And whatever you're clinging to in that moment, that's where your heart is. Some people, when they're disciplined, they break down in repentance because their relationship with God is more important to them than their sin. Other people, when they're disciplined, they dig their heels into the earth and cling even harder to their sin. And that's where Israel's heart will be when they are punished. They will keep clinging to their sin. And this is exactly where men will be during the tribulation. We haven't got there yet, but Nate will get there. Revelation 16, 8 through 11 says this, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for the pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. In the moment of disaster, a sinful man will refuse to repent. He will refuse to give glory to God. He will cling to his sin, proving just how deserving of judgment he really is. Christian, we can't act like that when we're disciplined. When we're disciplined, we need to recognize it and give up the sin. Stop digging your heels in and holding on to your sin. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God once again causes the pagan nations to testify against Israel in verse 13. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I will punish Israel for his transgression, I will punish the altars of Bethel. That's the cause. Here's the effect. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Bethel was a seat of idol worship in the kingdom of Israel. The altar was the place where man sought atonement and found mercy from God. For God to say that the horns of the altar in Bethel would be cut off meant that in the day of their punishment, they would receive no mercy from God. And that's a lesson that Amos is teaching Israel here. God gives men chances to repent. He gives men opportunity to find his mercy. Some men he gives more opportunities. Some men he gives less. I don't know why. But if you're hearing this this morning, because you're alive, you have the chance to experience his mercy today if you would repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can find his mercy today. But you also need to know this. You'll never find mercy in hell. If you die before you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be sent to hell. And there is no mercy to be found in hell. Not for all of eternity. So we plead with you to find it today. Call out to Jesus Christ. Let's look at the final cause and effect statement in verse 15, and then we're going to close our time together this morning. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. There's the cause, and here's the effect. And the house of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. God is telling Israel that he is going to specifically be judging the wealthy people in Israel. We saw in previous sermons how the, the wealthy were guilty of oppressing, severe oppression of the poor. They perverted justice to benefit their bank accounts, and God really, really hates those sins. So he specifically says he's going to destroy the fruit of their wealth. 
The rich had summer and winter homes, which are overlaid in ivory, extremely ex extravagant. And these homes would be raised by the conquering army. The wealth of the rich families would be decimated. Their family lines would be cut off, leaving nothing to pass on to the future generation. And we, we've come to the end of this chapter. And, and even though there have been application points throughout our study, I, I just want to close with a few more for your consideration. Uh, this chapter has been like a very detailed um, relationship status button on Facebook where Amos has described exactly where Israel stands in her relationship to God. It's not going well. And things are about to get really bad for Israel. But you can learn from her. You can prevent your relationship with God from getting as bad as Israel has. And the first thing you need to learn is that just because all is going well with you doesn't mean that all is well between you and God. You need to seek him in his word and let him tell you where your relationship with him is truly at. He promises in Jeremiah 29, 13 that if you seek him, you will find him if you seek him with all of your heart. So I would ask you to seek him this week and ask him to tell you where you really are at in your relationship with him. Where do you stand before him? And don't silence his voice as Israel did. Listen to him. Second, if you're in the middle of a season of God's discipline this morning, then you need to respond to God's discipline properly. Remember that being a child of God means that you agreed to be disciplined by a loving father. His threat of discipline is not an idle threat. And you do well to remember that in the future when you're tempted to sin. Recognize that God has disciplined you because of your sin. It's your fault that you are experiencing these consequences. Confess that sin and turn from it. Turn from your sin by drawing near to God. God promises that if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you, and he will teach you the lesson that he wants you to learn as a result of his discipline. And finally, I would encourage you just to learn from Amos and imitate him. Live your life in the fear of the Lord, as Amos did. Live in obedience to his word. Remember that with great privilege comes great responsibility. So fear God and do what he says. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I, I pray that you would help all of us this week, today, to truly seek you from our hearts and to find out where we do stand before you. God, I ask that you would just eliminate all the, the thoughts that we have about where we think we are. And God, just show us from your word where, where we stand. And God, if there's sin in our life, Lord, bring us to repentance. And Father, as you discipline, God, help us to trust you and to love you through the discipline because we know that you love us and you discipline us for our good. And God, strengthen us so that we can obey you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio, check out our website at harvestcambridge.org or like us on Facebook at Harvest Cambridge. You are loved.